welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Aaron. Every couple of weeks, Aaron and I will get together to talk about some general theme in the wild and wonderful world of ecology, evolution, and natural history. And this week, that theme is crabs, yeah? Yep, crabs. I'm, I'm excited for this one. I actually had several crab topics in mind. Did you really? I, it was all different ones I just picked up on the go, and then I'm like, man, I got like three or four crabs just sitting around here. That's a Maryland guy for you, if I've ever yep. heard one. With that being discussed, am I up? You are up first. What do you got for me? All right, so when you think of a crab, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Pinchers. Yes, exactly. Usually some kind of claw. And that's generally a pretty good place to start. Claws are quite the calling card for crabs, and many of them have large or weirdly shaped claws that are used for a variety of different purposes, whether it's, you know, shredding food or defense or, you know, fighting off rivals, any anything like that. But for this episode, I decided to flip that on its head and discuss a crab whose claws have a very, very different look to them. Um, this episode, I'll be talking about the genus uh, Libya. Specifically, the most well-studied group, the boxer crabs. Are you familiar at all? I'm assuming they're from Libya. They're actually not. Nowhere near Libya. Why would we name them that? No idea. If you really, that, if you really want to talk about naming conventions in in biology, uh, that's a rabbit hole in and of itself. You could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> hey, here we have the genus Californicus. Where's it from? Ah, uh, Norway. Right. <laughs> was it some guy named Libya? You know? Name them? Do you, if you hold them up to the sun, do you, like, see a map of Libya? Yeah, I don't know why they're called that. I don't know, like, if you listen, if you, like, lean in really close, if they'll give you, like, a weather forecast in Libya. I couldn't tell you. But that's the genus. L. It's spelled differently. It's not the same. Okay, like, okay. It's L-Y-B-I-A, so... So they flipped it. They did, yes. They just put okay. the Y in the I and <laughs> named some crabs after it. The poor, uh, the scientists probably got confronted by it. Say, hey, you can't just name it after a country. <laughs> I get you like the country, but you can't do that. And he's like, <laughs> very disgruntled taxonomist. Flipped it around. That'll show him. Yeah, but uh, taxonomists are, in a lot of cases, have been just making it up as they go along, man. Honestly, it's such a convoluted scientific topic. Like, things have been rearranged so many different times and in so many different ways that it's crazy. Oh, absolutely. Especially with invertebrates. Because we learn more about invertebrates and find that they're related in all different kinds of ways that we didn't anticipate before. But I digress. Talking about boxer crabs... There are these tiny little crabs that often inhabit coral reefs and other tropical waters in the Indo-Pacific, which includes Southeast Asia, Indonesia, and Polynesia, which uh, includes Hawaii as well. These crabs are found even as far north as Japan. So, a pretty sizable range, there are a few and there are a few different species in this uh, genus as well. They're omnivorous, like many other crabs, and they feed on, you know, general detritus that they find in and around their habitat. Like many other crabs, they are ov they are oviparous, so their eggs grow and develop externally and, and are carried by the female until they are fully developed and ready to be released. So, 
That general description seems pretty standard for a crab, yeah? Yeah, yeah general like, crab. Right. At this point, you would probably be wondering why they're worth discussing. And the answer to that would be that they have a remarkable relationship with sea anemones. Specifically, these are the crabs that carry around anemones on their claws. Mm, they don't beat the crap out of them. No. no. <laughs> That's how they got the name. Right, and this is why they are sometimes referred to as the pom-pom crabs, because they kind of look like little arthropod cheerleaders, just going around like, yeah. You have the two polar opposites of naming going on right there, the boxers or the pom-poms. Okay, I didn't name these crabs. <laughs> this is just what other people call them, okay? We have to commit to one or the other. I mean, I could see both. I could honestly see both names, though. That both names make sense to me, because the anemones do look like pom poms, so I get that. And also, like if you if you squint and probably don't have good enough eyesight, the anemones can kind of look like little boxing gloves. So, how big are the crabs? They're tiny. Okay, They're like less- so I'm gonna go with pom pom because I'm not gonna consider when I think boxer, I think threat, and I think I'd have to be the size of a quarter. To really perceive these as a threat. Well, I mean, not all boxers are big guys. You know, like there are weight classes in boxing. Yeah, but most of them are bigger than my toenail, I would think. True, true. All I'm saying is that you don't have to be big to be a really good boxer. These crabs are known to carry around an anemone on each claw all the time. Whether you want to call them pom-poms or boxing gloves is up to you, but that's just what these crabs do. And they do not drop the anemones unless they are forced to by something like, you know, their molting process or perhaps some scientific researchers who are just really enjoying messing with them. And these anemones are really essential for the crabs for two reasons. The first, and perhaps more obvious reason, is that they provide protection. So anemones have really powerful stinging capabilities that the crabs can take advantage of when one is mounted on each of their forelimbs. So these stings have been documented paralyzing small fish that attempt to prey on the crabs. So, you know, they pack quite a punch. No pun intended. (laughs) And without the anemones, the crabs are basically defenseless. They're very easy prey for just about anything else that they might come across on a reef. So these crabs are rarely observed missing one of their anemones, much less both. These crabs actually have, like, stunted, modified claws that are designed to hold the anemones. So without the anemones, the claws are pretty useless for defense, unlike the claws of other crabs. So they really need the anemones. Really do, yes. They're quite essential. So essential that when the crabs do lose one of their anemones, they will actually split the remaining anemone, essentially forcing it to reproduce asexually, so that the crab once again has two anemones, one for each claw. I might so, be jumping the gun here, but how do they first, when they're young, how do they get an anemone? I'm guessing the adults don't rip it off and hand it to them. You don't really see that kind of parental care in crabs. No, no. My understanding is that they find the anemones. Okay, so for like <laughs> the first three hours of walking around on the ground, they're probably terrifying. Well, like most crab species, their their initial life stage is planktonic. Okay, so their motto is produce a lot of offspring and hope a couple make it. Oh, yeah, this is the spray and pray approach to reproduction here. This is not, there's no parental involvement here, really. The second reason these cra- these anemones are so important for the crabs is that 
they actually help the crab feed. So the anemones collect food, which the crabs can remove with their mouth parts, not unlike how other crabs remove food from their claws. So these crabs will actually go up the wall of a little cave or like a rock or a piece of coral and just like, you know, run the anemone over the surface and the anemone will like pick up all the little gunk and then the crab will just kind of like pick out all the edible bits. So if you had like a sentient Swiffer on either hand and you went to a food court after everyone was done and you kind of just do a little snacking. That's basically how the pom-pom crab do. Yes. It's pretty much how it works. And apparently it's quite effective. So because this is more of a tricky proposition with the anemones, um, the crab's second pair of limbs, that is the frontmost pair of legs, are actually modified so that they can also bring food to the crab's mouth parts. So if, you know, for whatever reason they want to actually grab something that's on the, gr- on the, you know, on the ground or nearby that they can't, you know, just scoop up with the anemone, they can do that with their front forelimbs as well, which is a unique ability among crabs. Usually those legs are just used for mobility. So they've basically developed that adaptation just because of the anemones. Yeah, this is also why the anemones stick with the crabs, right? Because they're continually brought a new source of food. So even if the crabs eat a lot of the food, that still leaves the anemones with more than enough food to survive. You know, many other similar species of anemone that do not live with crabs, you know, they have tentacles where they perform photosynthesis to generate enough food to live. These anemones just don't even bother with photosynthesis. They completely lack that ability because they don't need to. The crabs lead them to all the food they could ever want. So it's a really good deal for the anemones, too. And is it any anemone or like uh, do they have one in particular they really like? There is a specific kind, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, from what I could tell, this anemone can live without the crabs. Like, it's capable on its own. But what's interesting is that when they've done research on how the anemones respond to the crabs, like, the anemones actually take a different shape when they're in a mutualistic relationship with the crabs. Because of the crabs, like, you know, constant mouthing of the anemone, it, like, kind of morphs it into a different shape. So they do it adapt to living with the crabs in some ways. But what's also interesting is that in captivity, without the presence of predators and with a constant supply of food, the crabs can survive without the anemones. However, of course, these conditions simply don't exist in the wild, right? There's not ever going to be a situation in the wild where you have a constant supply of food and no predators. Yeah, not going to happen. So, a further note here is that the crabs do engage in fights, right? Like a lot of other species, there is a fair amount of interspecific competition. So we're going back to the boxing name. Yes. Kind of. It gets tricky. I'll explain. Oh, let me guess. They fight over a female and she gets to cheer on the sidelines. (laughs) There we go. It goes both ways. (laughs) The pom-pom crabs. Yes, exactly. So, what's interesting is that in these fights, though, the crabs do not use the anemones at all. So, they'll use the anemones on predators, but not on each other. And they did a really interesting study about this um, in the 90s by uh, Carplus Fielder and Ramcharan R. That was really quite adorable, honestly, because they put these crabs, which are already really tiny, in a little aquatic fighting arena... 
So it was like a miniature underwater version of Gladiator. Gotta love science sometimes. I know, right? Sometimes you just read a paper and you're like, man, they must have had a good time doing this. This was something they did on a weekend, and they thought, yeah, you know what, we might be able to publish this. <laughs> yeah, and then they typed it up and brought it to an editor, and the guy was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. But yeah, in these bouts, the crabs could be using all other limbs in this really intense grappling contest. But even in a situation like that, they will actually extend their claws away from the fight, keeping the anemones completely absent from the bout and unaffected by whatever's going on. So this even applied to crabs that had their anemones removed. So even if you took the anemones off of a crab, put it in a bout with another crab, it would still like hold its claws away from the fight as if it still had the anemones. Hmm. The authors of this paper kind of had three potential hypotheses for this behavior. The first one the, is that the crabs are immune to the stings of anemones, so it's pointless to use them in a fight. Number two, the anemones, have, they actually have the opposite effect on the crabs. They're so dangerous that using them would be mutually destructive. Personally, I don't see the merits of this one because they mouth the anemones to get food. So either they do that incredibly carefully and just it's common practice for them, or, yeah, it's just not the case. The crabs have some immunity. Yeah, that's a very good point. Maybe they're just, their mouths are tougher, a layer of mucus or something? That's very possible as well. Or maybe it's like uh, they have a couple really sensitive spots, like their eyes, maybe. I, I don't know. Right, right. But... There are some merits to this theory because this kind of behavior is observed in other species. So, for example, venomous snakes will not use venom in interspecific fights because of how deadly the venom is. So they want to save that for a more threatening situation. The third reason is that the anemones are so valuable that it does not make sense to risk damaging them in a fight. So... The crabs might beat off the potential rival, but they'd get but in doing so they would seriously impair their own ability to collect food if they involved the anemones. And also their ability to defend themselves from predators. So yeah, I see them I personally see the merits of all three of those hypotheses. I kind of lean toward the third one, if I'm being honest. But I th- I would go third also. You made it seem like this is so essential to their survival that why risk it at all? Although I would be curious to see if they have any sort of resistance to anemone stings on their, like, carapace. Right, exactly. And that's kind of where I see, you know, the merits of the th- the second theory. Where, you know, if you're involved in one of these bouts... Like, you're not going to be able to keep track of all your limbs and where they're going and how they're getting pushed around. And so, for example, if the crabs are really, really vulnerable on their underside, you could totally get stung by your own anemone. And, you know, it's game over for you. So, I could see the point there as well. But, the other thing, too, is that the fighting behavior of these boxer crabs is actually more performative. So it really is like a cheerleading competition because they're just waving their, you know, waving their enemies around and doing, maybe doing a little shadow boxing. Like they kind of fake punch at each other, but don't actually hit each other with the enemies. 
And so they really don't make contact with each other that often. Like, the definition of about in this study was any time the crabs came within a certain distance of each other, they didn't have to actually make contact. So, or in practice, the crabs would just go up to each other, do a whole lot of waving, and then one of them would back off, and that would be the end of it. They kind of approach each other, do some vigorous jazzercise, but keep a respectable distance the whole time. Yes, yes, precisely. So that's more often how it works with these uh, crabs, which, I mean, that kind of bout is relatively common in the animal kingdom. The obvious example being a, a lot of bird species. They don't usually make contact with each other, but they have these inc- you know intense like singing competitions. So, you know, something similar seems to be going on here with the crabs, with these more performative fights that don't do as much damage to the actual participants. So really, instead of a fight between two boxers, it's more like a beef between two rappers who just kind of keep making diss tracks and don't actually hit each other. That's kind of how I look at this particular type of fighting between the crabs. Yeah, kind of, kind of. Yeah, I think so. Right, right. But whatever the actual reasons behind this their peculiar interspecific fights, the mutualism involved between the crab and the anemone is really fascinating and was definitely worth talking about. So that's my piece. Yeah, really cool. I like when you started talking about the uh, uh, the competition between them. And was it between males specifically or just any of them? No, no. Um, they did this study on male and female crabs. Okay, so they all just kind of do the little standoff. Yeah, I think it's more of a territoriality thing than it is like a mate comp- than a mate competition thing. Oh, okay. So. I'll do it. There we go. All inclusive. We went from boxing to <laughs> pom poms. I think back to boxing for a little bit until I learned how they actually fought. And yeah, I think rap battle is really the best way to describe it, <laughs> with a lot of hand gestures. Right, right. So really, this is a very progressive piece. Because it's all about how both men and women can participate in rap battles, boxing, and cheerleading. There we go. That's a good takeaway. So, what have you got for me? All right. So, I'm going to be talking about the samurai crab. Have you heard of this? No, not at all. Okay. So, uh, there's a. am using the common name here, but I think there's a lot of crabs called samurai crabs. But this is the most famous one. I'll talk a bit about their biology, and then I'll delve into some of the very interesting theories behind these crabs. Also, you can't convince me that there isn't already, like, a low-budget action movie out there somewhere called Samurai Crab. I, I'm pretty sure these guys have appeared in movies before, like the, the, the literal crabs. Okay, but they should totally make, like, a sci-fi movie called Samurai Crab. That would be amazing. There is, are you familiar, you're not much of a game, are you familiar with Dark Souls? A little bit, a little bit. So there is a hermit crab, Dark Souls, and I can't remember what it is called, but it's like a very difficult fighting game where you are a crab going up against just random animals, and you have a shell on you at all times. So it already exists. It's just... <laughs> it kind of does. <laughs> it's just a variation of Dark Souls. It's hard too. It looks kid friendly, but it's intentionally made difficult. Well, yeah, I mean, life's probably not easy for a samurai crab. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you can like uh, you can get different perks based on like if you have a bottle cap on your back or uh, 
uh, like an actual shell or a piece of glass, you know, it's like, or like a ramen cup. You you pick up pieces of trash as your armor. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Anyways, this is not about that. So, the samurai crab has many names. In Japanese, it is called haikigani, I think. Pronunciations okay. will not be the best. Bear with me. Which is just the haiki crab. Haiki being the name of a powerful Japanese clan in medieval period. The scientific name is Hykeopsis japonicus, which roughly translates to Hykee resembling from Japan. So this crab is all about looking like a samurai. So why did this family love crabs so much? Do we know that? Or did... No, I think it was named after them. They didn't name the crab. Oh, they had no idea? They weren't no. involved in the <laughs> no. discovery of these crabs at all? I mean, okay. they might have seen one before and think, hey, that's pretty cool. Yeah, probably happened at some point, but... There's not a lot of uh, surviving literacy from medieval Japan that talks about their perspective on the crabs. I I like to think they're pro-crab. They're fun guys to have around. Right, I mean, we're from Maryland, so we're all about people who are pro-crab. Oh, we're pro-crab here, without a doubt. Very, very pro-crab. So, these crabs are kind of fairly ordinary looking, minus a few key features. It's a brownish-green in color has more of a rounded carapace than the blue crabs that are more pointed on the sides. It has four elongated legs and small pinchers that almost give it a spider-like appearance. But the most important feature of all is the top of its shell, which resembles the face of a samurai. And it's not a weak resemblance. It's pretty pretty uncanny. Like, you look at it, and you don't even have to squint. You can go, oh, yeah, I see a samurai face. Of course, this is where they get their common name, Samurai Crab. And that's what I'll be calling them for us the episode to keep things simple and so I don't butcher all the pronunciations. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, that is striking. Okay. Yeah, I'll throw up a picture. So, ordinarily, the Samurai Crabs may be chalked up as just a weird crab that resembles a human. But at some point, someone looked at this crab and thought, there's got to be something more to this. And that spawned years of legends and debates and speculation. But first, we actually have to go over a bit of history. Okay. So I'll be talking about the Tale of the Haiki, which is an epic from 12th century Japan. And I bet you thought it wouldn't connect to crabs at all, but I swear it does. That details the conflict between the Haiki and the Minamoto clan. Uh, The Haiki are also known as the Taira clan. I, it's interchangeable. Don't know the context for when you call it Tyra or Heike, but they're the same guys. Anyways, this is a very complex story. I'm not a medieval Japan historian. The English translation is well over 800 pages, so I'm not going to summarize the events of this at all. All you know is that it is a civil war period in Japan that had great impacts on its history, and the epic is a fictionalized account of the real-life Genpai War but is a piece of literature that has survived from the 1100s, which makes it pretty significant regardless. Obviously, it has had very big cultural impacts on Japan. Right. Okay. Carry on. Anyways, here's the important part. Here's the part that did happen. During the Genpei War, there's an important battle known as the Battle of Dan no Ura, and this was a naval battle between the Minamoto clan and the Haiki. Bear with me here. 
Bear with me. About about seven eight hundred ships, with the Heike holding about four to five hundred. Despite the higher numbers, they were losing the war with the Minamoto. The battle did not go in the favor. The tide turned against them, giving the Minamoto the upper hand. Combine that with defectors, low morale, suicides. Uh, the emperor heir died in this battle as well. This broke apart the Tyra clan, ending their bid for power. And this is the decisive battle of this period. Very significant historic event, especially through the tale of the Heike. And it's definitely influenced pop culture. And the key portion being naming of the crabs after the Heike. So, according to the legend, the samurai crabs hold the spirits of the deceased Heike warriors, hence the name, and also why the faces are on the crabs. Okay. Okay. And this goes back to the 1700s to the people have thought of this. There's even paintings with crabs with human faces on them. Like I said, there's even a movie, and in the end, I think there's a guy playing an instrument, and he just had these crabs all over him. Old movie. So there's always been this superstition around these crabs that they are filled with the, the spirits of the Heike. Eventually, someone looked at these crabs in the modern era and thought, hey, what if humans accidentally selected these crabs to develop samurai crab faces because it's taboo to eat them? And thus, the samurai crab theory was born. So here's the idea in full. At some point after the legend of these crabs possessing the spirits of the Heike came about, not all these crabs actually resembled samurai. We thought that only some of these crabs did, or the resemblance was very weak across the board. The idea is that Japanese fishermen would catch these crabs, but they would throw back the ones that resemble a samurai because that is taboo. You don't eat them. Okay. The rejected crabs would survive and have offspring, while the regular-looking crabs would be eaten. Thus, the samurai crab's offspring would be better suited to the environment by looking like a samurai. And over time, the crabs would all begin to resemble the samurai because all the regular crabs would be eaten. This was, at the time, considered a form of artificial selection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is when we breed animals for desired traits, like breeding dogs for any dog breed for that matter. Some more classic examples like Darwin's pigeons or Gregor Mendel's peas. But this was an accidental form of it. Right, or corn, really. Yes, corn. Any domestic animal, any crop is artificial selection. People always say, you know, stay away from the GMOs. Everything's a GMO. Now, we may not be taking the genes out of another animal, but we selected them over time. Anyways, so this idea was actually proposed by, like, a fairly big name at the time, Julian Huxley. He was a British evolutionary biologist, brother of Aldous Huxley, the writer, and son of T.H. Huxley, who was one of Darwin's major supporters at the time. Okay, okay. He wrote an article in 1953 in Time magazine about this idea, and he stated, as I said, that the fishermen refused to eat crabs with human faces on them, and over time the crabs would gradually adopt this trait as the ones with the face would be selected for. Eventually these faces were 
he thought essentially that these faces were too specific to be accidental. It had to be the result of centuries of natural selection. Okay. And here's the thing. Everyone just rolled with this idea. No one questioned it. But is there... It was never a subject of great debate. Uh, really? No one ever, like... Yeah, it's just... Quite... Real... I mean, I guess if a guy of that stature presents an idea, people are... will tend to go along with it, but you're telling me there wasn't, like, at least some faction that was just, like, trying to be edgy and, you know, contradictory... And I mean, there might have been someone sending death threats to the editor. I I, I don't know, but <laughs> okay. for the longest time... <laughs> what kind of crab enthusiast are you that you had to send death threats over a postulation about a Japanese crab? He won't stand for the slander against the samurai crabs. <laughs> I, I'm not ruling it out. One guy might have done that. But no, I didn't see any real pushback on this idea for a very long time. It was just accepted. And this is where I first saw this. Footnotes. This was a very good example in biology, specifically like the evolution section. It was a little footnote in the corner. It'd just be a little something where they show a picture of the samurai and a picture of the crab. And they talk about uh, artificial selection. But in this case, accidental artificial selection. So people did not do it on purpose. Right. And Okay. This was a very common example. You can still find it in books to this day. So common that the idea actually made it onto the TV show Cosmos. If, if you're familiar, it's a, it's a science history educational series in the 80s. And the clip is still on YouTube. Yep, yep. I've seen an episode or two. Yeah. So I'm not sure why no one really questioned it. I think, like you kind of touched on, it was a real big name at the time. It was in a magazine. Everyone's just like, okay, sure, works for me. I don't think anyone's actively studying it. It doesn't seem like it'd be the subject of a PhD. You know what? Who am I to say could it be? It very well could be. I don't think it was, though. Not all of the samurai crabs had the samurai face on their shells. Um, you know, say about a thousand years ago or like even 500 years ago? No. So we don't even know if there was actually any selection for... Well, we don't know if the samurai face became a more common trait within the species or if they were just always that way. I, I think you'll find in a minute that there is very little evidence backing up this claim at all. Uh, it's surprising how it perpetuated for so long. Okay. All right, keep going. I'm probably getting ahead of you a bit. And th This strengthens my idea. I don't think he consulted a single... Japanese scientist, nor a single crab scientist either, because this <laughs> idea falls apart really quickly. Hell, I don't even think he talked to a Japanese fisherman. And I found a very useful article by Joel W. Martin that really debunks this entire, I'll call it the samurai crab conspiracy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, reason number one, the markings on the crab shell that resembles a face, all the indentations on the top of it, are not pointless. They're actually points of muscle attachment. Oh, okay. Makes total sense. So crabs, yeah, so crabs are arthropods. They have an exoskeleton. The muscles are inside the skeleton. They have to attach to something. And that's what these, ri these face-like ridges are. 
that's where the muscles attach to. They help the crab walk around. They're known as apodemes, and they increase the internal surface area to allow more attachment. Every crab has these. Literally, every crab has these. Every arthropod has some form of these. Granted, they're not all nearly as pronounced. It's very uncanny in the samurai crabs. But here's the thing. A lot of them have this. A lot of different crab species have a mask on them. So, in the Indo-Pacific alone, there's 17 different species across two families that all resemble a samurai's face. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it kind of puts a damper in things. They got some roided up crabs over there. Damn. Yeah, maybe they do. And across the globe, there are many different crabs that actually have human faces on their back. And in most cultures, these crabs are called something like mass crabs, ghost crabs, or demon crabs, usually in the native language. We have them in the U.S. There's some in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, okay. Okay. And fossil record shows these crabs have had these features long before the dawn of humanity. Got it. Got it. Okay. So there never was the faceless samurai crabs. They always look like samurai crabs. Oh, yeah. Who would have thought that a, that a white scientist in the 1950s didn't do a lot of research about a culture in another country? Yeah, this is the more I read it, I'm like. You just pulled this out of your ass. You got <laughs> you're just, published, you're too. You're making shit up, man. <laughs> yeah, I was actually able to find the original article from 1953. And I'm like, wow. Uh, also, the crab range is not limited just to the bay where the battle was fought. They're present all across Japan's shorelines and islands, and they all look the same. So you would think that if we were artificially selecting for these crabs... It would be in more prevalent. It'd be more prevalent in the regions where the battle took place because people would be more superstitious about it. You know, Japan is a long island. People on the far end of it, it might not hold the same culture as the people on the other end. But lastly, the final nail in the coffin against the crab theory, and I'm really surprised no one considered this earlier, because the whole idea of this theory is that the Japanese fishermen would not eat these crabs. We're- well, no one was eating these crabs because they're an inch across. <laughs> he didn't look into it. They're tiny. It's not a suitable meal. They're smaller than commercially harvested shrimp, and they don't even have the meaty tail. There's no point unless you're literally starving. You, you can't eat these. Maybe you can grind it up into a sauce or something, but that's all you're getting out of it. Ugh. Maybe. I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something to do with them. Not to mention, there's a lot of great seafood in Japan. It's probably some of their best cuisine. Why would you bother with these crabs right, at all? It's arguably some of the best seafood in the world. Like... Yeah. No. Totally unnecessary. So... This is why I think the original author, Julius Huxley, never consulted a crab scientist, Japanese scientist, or Japanese fisherman, anyone from Japan. I'm willing to bet he never reached out, not a single pen pal over there, when he wrote his article in 1953. Because, all right, hear me out. I read through this. I combed this article. He mentioned that there is a similar species in England named after... We'll go with Cassivellaunus. Okay. Again, my pronunciations, they aren't the best. 
This guy was a British chieftain who fought against Julius Caesar. So he said in his paper, well, is this the same thing? This figure died in a crucial battle. We have these crabs. People don't eat them because it's taboo, you know. Could this have happened here also? And he said no. One reason was the mask wasn't very apparent in this species. But in his own paper, he literally said the species is too small to be consumed. He debunked his theory in the original article. And all he had to do was just read the fine lines a little more. It's almost like he had multiple personality disorder and one of his personalities was trying to undermine this stupid-ass theory from the first personality. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Like, he was just sneaking in little tidbits into the paper about how this wasn't really true. I, this was like a two... Like, the article itself was like ten pages, but there's two pages dedicated to the crabs. Like, I think he was just seeing... Maybe he had a bet wait, with someone. Wait, 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 wait. So this man wrote a 10-page paper, ostensibly about these crabs. It was an article. It wasn't, like, peer-reviewed. Not a proper paper. Okay. He wrote a 10-page article uh, that was ostensibly about these crabs. And, and there's a lot of ads. The there's a lot of ads. I'll, I'll give it that. But he only talked about the crabs for two pages? He only talked about it, but that was the lead point. Like, the crabs were the main focus of that article. Okay, but still, your main focus should get, like, at minimum like 40 to 50 percent of the focus of your article like 20 percent isn't the focus of your article that's at best an anecdote yeah like i tell you people rolled with it i still found articles like generally this was less reputable sources like if you look up samurai crab you can maybe find something from like i don't know buzzfeed like an article of that caliber kind of might touch on it you're not going to find any more esteemed papers i mean most people discarded this but you still find this in textbooks hey hey how dare you slander the solid scientific reputation of buzzfeed buzzfeed i love their listicles (laughs) top 10 frozen inspired cocktails you can enjoy this christmas (laughs) i'm willing to bet that's an article I, i just pulled that out of my ass too Right. Number one on the list is Melted Olaf. It's just vodka with a carrot in it. Okay, uh, I didn't find Frozen one, but I did find 29 (laughs) Disney-themed cocktails you need to try ASAP. (laughs) Is there a Frozen one? Uh, I'm not reading through all 29, but I will bet it's in there. (laughs) Say no Say Like I said, I didn't see them reporting on these crabs specifically, but... Usually, I think it'd be a source like this that might touch on it. Oh, there are 29 of them. Yeah, that's why I'm not reading through it all. Yeah, number one is is, is the cold front, which oh, literally <laughs> has a picture of Elsa. Okay. <laughs> we didn't have to go far in that one. Good to know. Yeah. So, yeah, that actually exists. <laughs> okay. the, joke about, the joke about BuzzFeed was actually like an actual BuzzFeed article. Yeah, who would have thought? I'm a prophet. You know your website is ridiculous when you can't even make fun of it because all the jokes are true. <laughs> yeah, so usually you would still see people talking about the crabs and their potential, like, oh, humans created these crabs accidentally. You can still see it on articles kind of like that or websites like that. 
but it still lingers in textbooks. Granted, it's always a footnote, but it still hasn't fully been shook off. Just this one article from 1953. Right, right. I, I guess that makes sense. Like, in, in a lot of cases, textbooks will just kind of, like, recycle the same examples over and over and over again when talking about a specific topic. And so in different editions where they're just kind of like updating the pictures and maybe making things look a little different, they keep a lot of the same content, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like why it was always a little irritating in college when they would ask us to get the newest edition of a textbook for a class. And all of us are like, but it's the same as like the first edition that I can get for like 10 bucks. Yep. You know, set you back a couple hundred sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I do love the footnotes. Like, uh, you, what else do you see? Coelacanth, that's like the biggest biology footnote. There's always a picture of that next to a fossil. Right, right. That's a big one. But yeah, samurai crabs, let's, let's leave that one behind. Or maybe you could talk about the history of the theory like I'm doing now. Right, also... You're telling me that there isn't another similar situation to what we thought was going on with the samurai crabs that they could just, you know, plug in essentially in that same slot? Yeah, so artificial, or sorry, accidental artificial selection does exist. A great example is antibiotic resistances in bacteria. That is not on purpose. I don't think anyone wants that to happen, but it does happen. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we'd like it not to happen. A larger example is elephants. Your average elephant actually has smaller tusks nowadays because of poachers. They go after the big tusks. That's where the money is. So over time, that is going to drive down the tusk size of elephants. That's a good example. Put that in a textbook. Exactly. That one's real. Yeah. So in addition to everything I just said about all this, also add that uh, Julius Huxley was also a very strong advocate for eugenics. So let's maybe not go off of every word he says. Maybe we can leave this one in the past. Uh, not all of his ideas are good ones. Not everything's going to be a winner out of this guy's mouth. I'm shocked to hear that. Shocked. <laughs> and I will add that in addition to everything listed in the article debunking the samurai crab artificial selection theory, Joel W. Martin, the author of this paper, is actually a specialist in studying crab evolution and doesn't advocate for eugenics, so I'm more inclined to go with his ideas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, f- I feel like that should be like a... That's, a pretty, that's a, a pretty good litmus test. Not for whether you should believe somebody's ideas, but for whether you shouldn't believe them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. At the very least, be a bit more skeptical. Maybe don't just accept it into a 1953 article without any peer review. Take what they're saying with like an entire container of salt instead of just accepting it automatically. Just or at thought. the very least, just talk to someone from Japan about this. Right. I mean, surely they have a better idea. Right, I'm exactly. willing to bet he never stepped foot on Japan when he came up with this idea. Yeah, he just saw the he just saw a picture of the crab and was like, "Oh, oh, I know how that happened." So I just wanted to end on a couple notes here. Number one, I love the myth behind the crabs. I I love the idea of it. That's true. Yes, that is a cool myth. Yes, uh, it is part of the culture. It is part of the history of the region. I'm not going to shit on that. And it has been referenced so many times in Japanese pop culture. Okay, yeah. Even though it isn't true, 
I think it is still part of the crab. It's an important lore behind it, but it's not, it didn't actually happen. Kind of like how you mentioned last episode, how the kappa is to giant salamanders. You know, there's a big discrepancy between the two, but you can see how one inspired the other. And it's still a great part of the history behind the salamander. Right, right. Yeah, myths and legends like these are really, really interesting to talk about because they not only are they just cool stories, but they're also they also offer a lot of insight into how people have viewed really cool animals throughout the centuries. Mm-hmm. And I will add that in the 80s, the crabs were actually found that they belonged in their own genus. And this is where the name Heike was proposed. And I think that's great. It's a great genus name for him. Reflects a lot about the culture and the history behind the crabs. Right. It has cultural and regional significance. All about that. Yeah, I love that. And uh, that is about it. Like I said, just because this scenario isn't true, unintentional artificial selection does still happen. Not in this case, but it still does. (laughs) And yeah, next time you see this on kind of a clickbait website or another big one is an Instagram fact page, just uh, know that not getting all the, uh, they don't have everything lined up. There's a bit more to it because I'm pretty sure I've seen it on like, uh, it's probably like amazing fact Instagram page, but one of the words is misspelled and they just repost from all the other fact things. All right. But so wait, here's another question though. If this was an ep- in an episode of Cosmos, they probably had some kind of video footage of the crabs. Oh, yeah. Uh, the video footage was a uh, a fisherman catching the crab and throwing it back. And I don't think anyone stopped to think, why would anyone eat that? Right. It's tiny. Right. Like, <laughs> no one thought to ask the guy why he was throwing the crab back. And it, uh, <laughs> it looked like a Japanese guy. Like, they didn't ask him. The only way this theory could work is if the crabs were at one point massive, or not massive, big enough that they would be eaten, and then somehow, as you made them smaller, the face became more pronounced. But again, like we saw, fossil history shows that they've had this face for a very long time. But that is my piece. All right, all right, very cool, very cool, and a nice uh, yeah, a nice bookend to what I was talking about last week with the Kappas and the Salamanders, or yeah, last yeah, episode. Definitely cool. Really like those. I, I like the little, the what do you call it, the myths behind the animals, or the animals that inspired the myths. Yeah, yeah. Because more often than not, those animals are really cool themselves, mm-hmm. even without the myths. So, All right. You got any ideas for next uh, episode? Okay, so you wanted to do the deep sea and i'm wondering if you could i found a deep could we just call it deep like does it have to be the sea (laughs) all right so i was thinking more about this topic that i really want to do it could also be an episode about metamorphosis okay i have a deep episode it's just not a deep sea it's 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 freshwater Oh, okay. You had me scared yeah. for a minute. For a minute, I thought you were just going to like do a deep dive on an organism. And I'm like, <laughs> that's what we do every episode. <laughs> I'm all about the puns. Oh, we could call it In Too Deep. Okay, Into the Deep. No, In Too, like number two. It's the, the sequel. It's a follow-up. <laughs> okay, maybe not. 
Don't like that. But yeah, we could do another. We could do another uh, deep water episode. Deep water. That's what we'll call it. Yes, the deep water episode. All right. All right. I'm all about it. So, you want to take us out? Yep. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow or review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can find us at Soup Pot Podcast on X or the Primordial Soup Pot at gmail.com. All right. And until next time, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya. <laughs>